What's up, guys? Welcome to the View from the Front podcast, a fast-moving, fun, military defense news podcast. For those who don't know, my name is Stan R. Mitchell, and I'm a prior Marine and journalist. Every week, I primarily do three things. First, I work to highlight what our military troops are doing around the world, while also trying to better educate Americans about looming hotspots and foreign policy news you absolutely should know. Second, I attempt to unite our country and remind us of how lucky we are to live in America. Our division and animosity toward each other is dangerous, and I want to do my small part to remind us that more unites us than divides us, and that most Americans are good and not screaming crazy extremists like you see on the news all the time. Finally, I always share plenty of motivation and wisdom at the end of each episode because I want to do my small part to help encourage you and lift you up. Life is certainly hard, and I think it's fair to say all of us need all the motivation and encouragement that we can possibly get. Every Thursday, I produce this podcast, so if you haven't signed up yet, I'd appreciate it if you did. All episodes are ad-free, and it's completely free to sign up and join the email list, or you can help sustain and support the show for $5 per month. You can find out how to do that from my Substack page, and with all of that out of the way, let's get started. This is the March 9th edition, and my word, is it an amazing day to be alive. Thank you guys for joining us. We have lots to get through today. I'll try to move fairly quickly through all of it, but we have plenty of news about Russia and Ukraine. We've got stuff about China. Uh, what else we got? We got lots going on. I've been working on this for a couple of days, so I'm going to, like I said, I'm going to try to move through it fairly quickly. Um going to got a little bit of information about U.S., some of our military stuff, and also uh, some news about Iran, and even some tech news at the end. And of course, we always end with plenty of motivation and wisdom. As a reminder, there are timestamps, and if you're listening on like Apple, you can go down to the notes, and you can see the various timestamps if you prefer to jump forward, which I have no idea why anyone would not want to, you know, get the full value of hearing my amazing voice for the entire episode. But I know, you know, there's a few that might, so I do want to mention that. And, um, yeah, I think that's it. So I apologize for my very lame and weak attempt at humor. Um, That's why I'm not a comedian, I guess. So we'll just get straight into the news. We'll begin with Russia and Ukraine because, as usual, that's pretty much the dominating news um, I guess, subject in the foreign policy world as continued horrific, ugly fighting happens there. And as mostly in the other spots of the world, such as China, etc., you know, most of the uh, stuff or news is potential looming friction and conflict, which is months, if not obviously years, more like years probably, years away but the positioning of the pawns and the structures and the alliances and the steps toward or away from conflict are happening. And so you've got to keep your eyes on that as it happens, but that's not happening right now. And what is happening is that there is plenty of ugly, nasty, brutal fighting happening, unfortunately, in Ukraine after they were illegally and wrongfully invaded by Russia. I always try to say it that way because it's been a year since this most recent invasion and I just want to remind anyone who happens to stumble across the podcast of why this happened. It wasn't like some border dispute that has grown into a larger war. This was an all-out invasion by Russia. And that's why I typically say it is just for possible new listeners, people who are just starting to get curious about foreign policy and what else happening in the world But actually, these days, I guess I need to say it for more than just new listeners, because I kid you not, one of the leading voices from Russia had this to say this week. The war was launched against us using Ukraine. So who said this? This was said by the Russian foreign minister. Uh, His last name is Lavrov. You've probably seen him on some news outlet. He's kind of the... He's obviously the Russian foreign minister, but he's really probably their best spokesperson. And unfortunately, if you have that job in Russia, most of the things you say are falsehoods. And so he's at a conference in front of the public, and he begins by saying that 
again, the war was launched against us using Ukraine. And he's probably about to go into his talking points about how the West is fighting Russia or NATO, which is, of course, absolutely not the case. But he says the war was launched against us using Ukraine. The entire audience explodes in laughter. It's very uncomfortable and funny at the same time. I have the video in the Substack notes if you want to hear it or see it, or both, I guess I should say. But it's pretty funny that they're trying to say the war was launched against them when all obvious evidence, video, even the statements at the time show a massive invasion of Ukraine by Russia multi-pronged. They came from the southern part. They came from the eastern part. They came from the north. It was a massive, massive invasion. And in case we all forget, we all thought at the time Russia would probably gobble up Ukraine in about three days. That's what most military analysts thought because Russia is such a much larger country and their forces, we thought at the time, had more experience and skill we were vastly wrong about that or how bad Ukraine wanted to defend their homeland and also how badly Ukraine had built up a national identity after more than a decade of war. Um, as a reminder, you know, you, Russia had you invited, invaded Ukraine uh, a couple of times before, both in the southern part in the Crimean Peninsula and also in the eastern part of the Donbass region. And Ukraine's military initially began as a conscript force exactly the same as Russia 10 plus years ago. Poorly trained draftees with very inferior communist bloc weapons from the Soviet Union. And so Russia would mostly overpower Ukrainian units at that time through, you know, better experience and skill. But in the 10 years since then, I think the West underestimated how much better the Ukrainian forces were getting year by year as Western countries were training Ukraine. But I just wanted to share that Russia is now trying to say that the war was launched against them and that Ukraine attacked them. That's obviously not the case. President Biden begged Russia not to invade. Many other foreign leaders from France, Germany, and other European countries tried to prevent a major invasion because Western intelligence picked up on it. But at any rate, definitely somewhat news that Russia is now going to try to say that they didn't even launch the war. And it's probably indicative of how much trouble Russia's having in the war. But you probably want to see the video. It's worth watching. Let me shut up now and let's move to that next topic. So we move from the silliness of what Sergei Lavrov said in public to something that's far more serious and that's been the heavy fighting in Bakhmut. That's obviously a city that was a population of about 70,000 before the war. It's now down to just a few thousand. The fighting there has been horrific for months and months. And if you've been listening to me for any time, you know, almost every week we discuss Bakhmut. It is probably Russia's number one um, target. And since the last episode, initial a lot has happened. And initially, Western media started talking about how Ukraine had finally decided to pull out of Bakhmut because Russia was throwing so many conscripts there and finally Ukraine leaders said this isn't worth the fight. Now this is something that a lot of Western generals had been saying that Ukraine didn't necessarily need to hold on to Bakhmut. There was literal, uh, little strategic value to holding on to it. And increasingly, some Western generals were beginning to question why is Ukraine trying so hard to hold on to it? Why not just back up a bit and let Russia take it? It's no big deal. You know, Ukraine is preparing for much larger spring offensives. And so it, that appeared to be what was going to happen. It was reported in the AP. I shared it on social media. And at the time, I said, you know, what I what I called it was a costly, irrelevant victory for Russia. And I said, you know, it took them, what, six months and thousands of dead. Um, those casualties are put somewhere between, like, five to 20,000, depending on who you believe. But Russia has lost a lot of people trying to take this city. And I, as I am prone to do, sort of mocked Putin, the leader of Russia, for 
what I said was not exactly what I'd call modern maneuver warfare because it's mostly been very costly, just large attacks of infantry. So Ukraine announces they're going to pull out. There's all kinds of discussion in the news and from an analyst across social media and people are arguing whether they should or shouldn't, which is what we do in the Western world is we get on Twitter and other places and we argue about things. But very quickly thereafter, within about a day or so, I'm looking at my timestamps here. Actually, it looks like it was about two days. So there was two days of what did appear to be withdrawals by Ukrainian forces. There was discussion and photo and video of bridges that were blown uh, two, perhaps, for sure, maybe more. But then th about two days later, it totally flips. Um, the Washington Post puts up a good story about the fighting, and the Washington Post announced that Ukraine does not plan to withdraw. And from that story, I've got it linked in the source notes, there's an announcement from the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky. He meets with his top defense and security people, and he says Ukraine has no intention of surrendering the city, even though it's nearly destroyed. And he says that the military experts said that they, even though there's like long-term very little strategic value to Russia, that Ukraine is not going to give it up, and that his military advisors had supported and endorsed reinforcing and continuing the city's defense. Now, he said he made all these statements public because it's kind of risky to say, okay, we're not going to withdraw. We're going to literally hold this city with almost all our effort, if not all our effort. But the reason, it's interesting, the reason he said that they were going to do this is that, and I'm going to quote, in order to avoid various insinuations that affect public sentiment, the opinion of the leaders has been made public, we will continue to defend our land. So I think what really happened is that they saw how much it started making the news that Russia had taken or was about to take Bakhmut. And I think I said literally in the last episode about how if you're not well informed, you might think that's a big deal because it's suddenly on CNN or some other news station that is barely informed on what's actually happening over there. So it was literally because of that, according to the Ukrainian president, that they decided not to. Now... In the source notes, it's kind of interesting. You can see a map. I've got the map linked. You can actually see the initially the withdrawal, and they blew up some dams so that there was natural barriers. They moved back to behind a river, and so they, they did strategically initially back up, but then they did some small counterattacks, and I quote someone who's been following the war quite a bit on Twitter that I've I've been leaning on as a source of news, and uh, he just goes by Doc. He's a prior military uh, guy, but he literally had really been following it and, and talked about how Ukraine retracted their lines, and they're in a prepared defense that's actually a defense in depth. And so, essentially, Ukraine continues to, they've reinforced, and they're going to continue holding the city. And in some ways, it's it's probably brilliant the more I think about it, because it's so clear that uh, Vladimir Putin is insistent upon taking this city. A lot of the Wagner mercenaries, or some people call them Wagner, but their mercenaries, some of their better forces are trying to take this city. And so it's almost like if you know what the enemy wants and, and you can be in a defensive position and really punish them, maybe it's not the worst idea in the world. So... That's the update on the battle for Bogmut, which continues and probably is going to continue for quite a while. So let's step away from the smaller, more specific battle of Bogmut and let's, you know, climb up to like 10,000 feet and get a more larger strategic view. I did want to share something that Major John Spencer shared. Now, as a reminder for anyone who's newer, who's listening, I've mentioned his bio before, but Major Spencer served 25 years in the Army as an infantry soldier. He went from private to sergeant first class and then from second lieutenant to major. He's been in combat as an infantry platoon leader and a company commander, and he's probably one of the top five analysts or so that you'll see on TV 
or various cable and news channels being interviewed about the war. He has been following it closely. He's written a couple of books. He's definitely someone who said when he says something, you you listen to what he says, and in most cases, you're not going to disagree with it. It's it's pretty much the infallible truth. Now he mentioned an article from Newsweek, and uh, Major retired Major Spencer said that no matter all the technology in the world, terrain and weather still dominate. Which it's hard to disagree with terrain and weather. You can't do a lot about that, whether you have drones or whatever. But most importantly, Spencer says, the mud has now returned like it did in February 2022, much to the bane of Russians. And so for those who have been keeping up with this back in last February, the Russians were seriously struggling with mud as they tried to initially, you know, successfully invade Ukraine. And of course, most people thought they would even take the capital, Kiev. They got very close, and part of what stopped them was mud. Part of it was incredible guerrilla-like attacks on their supply lines, which were very long, and they couldn't protect these supply lines as as well as continue their invasion. Now, whether they had enough forces to actually take Kiev, we'll never know, but they got strung out for you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of miles with attacks on their resupply lines. And so they ran out of juice, couldn't take the capital city, and then they had to start dealing with mud as they tried to withdraw, and they were hounded the entire way by Ukrainian forces who also struggled with the mud. The mud is no joke. But the bigger point I wanted to make besides the weather and the return of the, you know, the horrendous mud is Major John Spencer says that the Russian, you know, winter bet that they had, that they could have an offensive, that winter would help break Ukraine, He's, he flat out says it's failed. And so, you know, we, we're into March. Those who've listened for a long time remember going into the winter. Everyone was so concerned about how oil and gas prices would really hurt Europe because Russia wasn't supplying it anymore. There was concern that Western support would also fall off and they wouldn't supply with weapons or or financial aid. And there was also concern that the Russians are just really good at fighting at winter and what would the Ukrainians do. And so there was a lot of worry going into the winter. And he's flat out saying they they failed. Their winter offensive was a failure. And We've reported almost every week about various weapons that are going to be coming, as well as forces that Ukraine is training in other European co- uh, countries. Uh, there's been talk of, you know, we reported a, a full battalion was what they were trying to build up. And so Ukraine is preparing for offensives of its own, and they're going to probably be more successful because they're better trained. These aren't conscripts like Russia is using but I thought it was a big deal when someone of the weight of Major John Spencer says the winter failed. The Russian winter that everyone worried about, it failed. The support that everyone worried would falter in Europe and the U.S., that failed as well. And so that's great news for Ukraine and for, in my opinion, the Western world. But what's interesting is it's not just him saying it. It is starting to be said some in Russia. I think they're starting to recognize that they are in serious trouble, as we've been saying for almost six months now. I wanted to share a video, though, that really, really makes this clear. So what I'm about to share, I've got the entire video in the Substack notes, if you want to watch it. It's about two minutes long, but it's from a filmmaker in one of the, like, I don't want to say number one, that's an overstatement, but one of the top ten or so Russian analysts that are constantly on their state TV and, you know, for basically a year have been making all kinds of falsehoods about how Russia was winning or they would win, etc., etc. And so for a year, this has been going on, and for a year, Russia hasn't won, and Ru- and Vladimir Putin has had to have a mobilization and the economy starting to struggle. And so it's clear, unless you're just completely blind, that Russia is not doing too well. What's interesting, though, I wanted to share this video and read some of what this analyst for Russia said. 
And you see, it's worth watching the video if you want to watch a lot of people's mouths like hit the floor because they're watching a man that, you know, if you read a lot of commenters, people are like, this guy's going to fall out a window or he's going to be killed because some of the things he said are just shockingly true, but it was said on Russian TV. And so a lot of the people reading or watching this, I guess watching, would not have seen or heard anything like this unless they had been searching out this news on some of the private news sources such as Telegram that they can get some Western news. But for much of Russia, they've pretty much been hearing about how, you know, it's it's going to be a victory, blah, blah, blah. So this is what this guy says. He says, it really is a situation in which we have, we may have the most serious consequences for us in the event of us losing. And we need to admit that we could lose. I don't agree with those who say, don't say that, we'll win. And and during the video, all these people are almost like trying to stop him because they realize this guy's probably going to end up in prison or get killed. He keeps going. He says, I don't know about that. I don't know. We need to admit that we could lose. If you don't, you're not looking for different possible outcomes. He says, if you believe these things will just happen by themselves, no, that's not right. It's weakness. He said, it's not strength, it's weakness. You have to be able to look the truth in the eyes. I'm going to read that line again. You have to be able to look the truth in the eyes. You have to be able to assess your strengths and weaknesses and see the situation. And then he goes on, he dismisses the claim that the Ukrainian president Zelensky is being controlled by the West. He says, we need to treat Ukraine and Zelensky seriously. He's dangerous. He's not stupid. He's energetic. And he even says he's playing a large role in this story, that he's not just a puppet. And then by the end, he tries to say that Russia needs to take sterner tactics and mobilize just to bail himself out, I think. But it's a pretty shocking clip. And so I don't know what the larger implications of him saying that are, both for his personal safety or if it was authorized from the Kremlin or something. I don't think it was. But I think that increasingly, Russia just cannot continue to say that things are going well or that give it a little bit more time and things will be fine. It's increasingly clear to even the folks in Moscow and various parts of Russia that this isn't the case. As the great Major John Spencer said, Putin's winter bet has failed. So let's move to a little bit more, um, I guess less from 10,000 feet and more just on the weapons front. It's time for a quick update on whether Ukraine's getting any jets or tanks from the West. Now, last week we talked about that Slovakia might be sending some of their old MiGs that they're no longer using. I did search for an update on that just before recording the podcast today on Thursday, and there's been no new reporting on that. So I'll keep you posted on that if I hear or see something. But it's not just jets that Ukraine needs, it's tanks. And I did want to update that situation as well. It was reported that Poland is sending uh, 10 of the Leopard 2 tanks to Ukraine. And yes, I know for those who are trying to correct me that some analysts call them Leopard. But I'm American and I'm from the South and I'm calling them Leopards. So there's a chance they're getting 10 of them and they should be getting those um, this week actually. So finally, we talked about a month or two ago about all the tanks that Ukraine would be getting those are starting to begin to arrive. So that that will be huge. Also, it was reported that there were two Ukrainian pilots in the U.S. for training and an assessment on whether how they could use attack aircraft, including F-16s. So I've got that in the source notes, a link to that article. And I did want to say as well that, uh, and that article is in, from NBC News, so you can read that one for free. Um, one other thing that I came across is that the U.S. has made some pretty serious inroads with uh, Kazakhstan, and they are, you know, one of Russia's largest partners, and we have made some great inroads with them, and increasingly, they are moving away from Russia. Our Secretary of State visited there, and you can see a photo of him shaking hands with a leader from there, and so we are peeling away Russian allies as Russia is at the same time forcing away allies because it has just become such a toxic, um, I don't know the right word, but just a toxic, just a toxic country that is committing war crimes on a daily basis. So they've 
definitely made their bet on this one. Now, before we move on to some U.S. news, I wanted to say one more thing about the Ukraine war. I've got the link to a story that's completely free from the Kyiv Post about how Ukraine is combining U.S. smart technology that we've sent with or with tactics and techniques and technology that they have as well. And what they've done is they're creating these, they're using some older rockets, they're combining some U.S. technology, and they're really starting to be a headache to Russia. And there's an, the article is just amazing. It's worth the read. I don't have time to go into it, but I did want to offer that to you. If you want to read it, I've got the link to it in the Substack notes. It's worth the read. And these really long-range, they've converted these rockets into very long-range attack vehicles, basically, that are guided by uh, computer and wings and GPS. And the Russians haven't quite figured out how to deal with them yet, because Russia's obviously the paper tiger that really none of us knew that it would be. And so even their air defenses aren't that great. But it's an amazing story of Ukrainian ingenuity, because the West did not plan on Ukraine being able to do what they're doing but they have, again, I've talked about before, about how they've just so talented at figuring out quick fixes on technological things. We've talked about several issues, or several instances of that in the past three or four months. So I won't go into all those again, but if you want to read the article, it's there. Like I said, I don't think I have time to get into it. If you want to get me some feedback, though, every week I wonder if the episodes are too short or too long. Some feedback would be awesome. If you're the type of person that's like, hey, I'm sitting in an office, I don't care if the thing's three hours, I will listen to ever how much you give, tell me. If you're like, Stan, come on, dude, like, my commute's 20 minutes, just, I need the high points, it needs to be way shorter, I need to know that too. So, love to hear some feedback on that, but to keep it short, the article's there if you want to read it. Let's move from that to some U.S. news that I wanted to make sure we squeezed in. Now, I wanted to get into some U.S. news about our military, and I linked to an incredible article that's kind of shocking to read, honestly. This is one of those, like, I never saw it coming, and then you read it, and you're like, oh, I guess all that makes sense. This involves the F-22 Raptor, which is obviously one of the greatest fighter jets in the world. But... Unfortunately, and maybe this just kind of dates me, but they are now starting to talk about basically getting rid of the F-22. And it's crazy because it's this dual-engine fighter. It's such an amazing fighter. It was obviously a step up from the F-15, which most people are familiar with. And it's crazy that we're getting through it, rid of it. Like, how, how is that possible? It's still one of the best in the world. It, it makes no sense to get rid of it, especially when the newer F-35s, which are single-engine, they're kind of underpowered. They have all kind of technological issues. You hear constant complaints about them. And it's like, why would we get rid of this F-22? It's so stable and dependable and just proven. It makes no sense. And then you read the article, and I've got it linked and it's from Task and Purpose, and again, huge props because it's an amazing article. But when you read it, it kind of makes sense, and we're basically getting rid of it because we don't have many of them. There's about 186 of them, and we're now making F-35s, so it's got different parts. The uh, interior, like electronics and avionics, are now dated big time by you know almost 20 to 30 years compared to what the F-35 is, so the guts of it, so to speak, even though the airframe is amazing and fast and powerful, the brains, the, you know, in, like I said, the guts of it, they're just not as good as the F-35. So it, it would cost a ton to replace it. And because there aren't very many of them, you'd have to change the design of how to, how you'd get that stuff crammed into this older fighter. And there's already talk of what would be the replacement for it. And so it goes into some of the... It's a really good article. I don't want to give much more of it away. But I did want to let you know that if you were like me, I just didn't really see it coming. And I know my explanation doesn't make a ton of sense, but the article is worth the read. If you're the kind of person that's like, uh, the DOD, the Pentagon, the Department of Defense is wasting money, and why do they blah, blah, blah. You read this article, and at first, like the whole time you're reading it, if you're anything like me, you're like, no, we can't get rid of it. Why, why would we get rid of it? This is stupid. No, fix it. And you kind of read it more and more, and you're just like, oh, that makes sense. And you're like, oh, okay. Oh, wow, okay, yeah, that makes sense. So anyway, I'm sure that 
there will be various people going on TV and arguing about this in four or five years when it starts to become bigger news. But uh, it's kind of hard to think about that this could be the end of the F-22. And it's going to be a while before they're gone. But it's just kind of one of those things that if you're like me, you kind of just need to accept it. And so if you want to read the article, it is worth reading because you're going to feel so much smarter afterward. And especially if you talk to any of your friends about defense stuff, you're going to blow their mind when you tell them that we're getting rid of the F-22. And they're going to be like, no, we're not. And then you're going to be able to just quote stuff to them. And you're going to feel, like I said, so smart. Now, there's two other things that I wanted to share that are U.S. news type items. And this goes back to me really wanting feedback. I'm not going to go into either of these. I just wanted to link to them so that you can go to the source and actually read about them yourself. They're worth mentioning, but I have no idea on timing. I still can't figure out how long these podcasts should be. So again, give me some feedback. But the first one, there's a great article from 2020 that is just now starting to become public about how 30 Navy SEALs three years ago loaded up, flew like 11 hours nonstop, and they rescued an American hostage in Nigeria. So that's starting to come out a bit because... Um, some of them, five of them, were awarded some uh, the Distinguished Flying Cross. And so, although all the Navy SEAL stuff hasn't come out yet, at least now the mission's a little bit more publicly known. So, really cool story. We always talk about how there are people who are doing things behind the scenes for no attention, but this is just one of those where it's a good article to read to remember how amazing it is that we have men and women doing things that are just almost borderline humanly impossible. And then there's also an article that if you're a veteran especially, I wanted to at least link to it. It was just a moving article. And the article is about, it's from Task task and Purpose as well. I'm obviously always usually singing their praises, but about the unspoken caste system among veterans. And so what is the article about? And it's just this really personal article about how you either went to war or you didn't, and how you either ended up in combat or you didn't, and how this is totally a just a a matter of like fate and luck or bad luck, and it really does divide the military community because there are folks who wanted to go who got put in a unit that stayed stateside or that didn't or went to a part of Afghanistan or Iraq that wasn't that dangerous and so they never got a combat action ribbon they never were tested and the article just goes into that it kind of war divides even veterans i know america's always so divided but for those who don't realize it among veterans, anytime a couple of veterans who don't know each other get together and you kind of start filling each other out, figuring out their records, where they were, what they did, inevitably the thing that comes up is whether there was combat involved or not. And the article just talks about how crazy it is that we have incredibly talented, disciplined people who didn't go to war, who did their jobs, who served their country, who would have, who put their lives on the line in a heartbeat when they signed up and raised their hand. But they never did that thing that kind of makes them, that we all build up in our minds as that person did this or did they stay in Florida. And so it really is kind of a divide that it's it's just something that if if hopefully what I've said has made it worth your time to go to the Substack notes, go read the article because it'll really make you think. And for those who didn't see anything, it lets you see their angle because I don't think I'd considered before that how, I almost want to say painful, I don't know the right word, but how emotionally, you know, empty some must feel who wanted to go, you know, pay their dues and share that heavy, heavy load of combat, and they just weren't allowed to. And so they, like, sat on the sidelines. So they're like the, the you know, second or third string linebacker on a football team that wins a Super Bowl, but they never even get in to make the play. But in this case as the article talks about, like this is a highly decorated person who was really great at their job and served for a long time, but it wasn't even like their second or third string. They just didn't get the call to go make the play or to get deployed and how that has in a weird way kind of scarred them. And it makes you realize it has probably done that to a lot of people. So anyway, a great deep article that I highly recommend. Now, 
we'll move from that to some China news. Just a quick reminder, if you love what you're listening to, please sign up for email notifications. It's free to do so, unless you choose to subscribe and support what I'm doing. People are always asking me on social media how to best support my dreams, including getting out future books sooner. Believe me, the best way to support me is by signing up for a paid subscription. You can find out all the details through my Substack page, and you can support through both Substack, Patreon, or Venmo. Again, all those details are on the Substack page. But believe me, you don't have to do any of these things. I've already had incredible support and feel called to do this. So as long as I'm making enough to cover the time I invest each week, I'm not going anywhere. All right, enough of the sales pitch. Now, on the China news today, it's kind of like the beginning of a tale of two cities. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Because the first part, I've got two things we're going to cover on China. And the first part involves China. And the second part involves the U.S. And it's literally like a flip-flop of the same story. I didn't plan it that way, but it's just how it ended up being. I always grab a few things that I notice, and as I was looking at it today and pasting it in and, and getting ready to speak about both of them, I realized, holy crap, they're basically the opposite story. That's the same story, but you'll see what I mean in a second. So the first story comes to us from Reuters, and they've published a great article where they reviewed and analyzed more than 100 articles in over 20 defense journals that were written by like university researchers and military folks at some other military academies. And so they go into this article that's really just impressive about how China is obviously still moving toward potentially invading Taiwan. But they take several key lessons from the Russian invasion and as they look at their own capabilities. And I just wanted to quickly go over just a few of those. One of the things they realize is that there will be a rapid international response. The same as what happened to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. A lot of China's leaders are saying, hey, we need to be ready for what the world is going to do. And clearly, almost every week we cover things that America has done to strengthen international alliances that are increasingly, I guess, banding or, you know, forming together to counter China as China's fishing fleets and navy pushes around smaller countries in the Pacific. These countries are increasingly coming to the U.S. and the U.S. is coming to them and saying, hey, let's all work together. So their researchers are saying in China, hey, we need to be ready because the entire world's going to turn against us if we do this. The other thing is they've noticed how amazing the Starlink satellites have been for Ukraine to continue to be connected and communicate among each other while internet stuff would normally be down. These low-flying satellites from SpaceX have kept Ukraine in the fight. And so China says it needs to find a way to shoot them down or disable them, and they also need to develop their own similar network. So that they too can do that. Another thing that they talk about is obviously the use of drones. And I love what one said. It said that unmanned aerial vehicles will serve as the quote door kicker of future wars. Now for those who don't know and being an infantry guy everyone talks about being a door kicker. But if you never served you may not know what a door kicker is. So the door kicker is the guy when you get a stack of soldiers or marines on a building Someone has to kick front door down, and that person's usually called a door kicker. And it's a dangerous job because clearly if they shoot through the door, you're going to be the one that eats a few bullets. So someone has to lead the way and do this. And so China, their experts are saying, hey, drones will be the door kicker of future wars. And it's interesting because that reminds me of there was a video that was getting shared. I'm going to probably be wrong on my time, but it feels like it was about six months or so ago. But there were, there was this drone that was a Chinese drone, like one of those quadcopters, and it was flying all around this bunker on an island in Taiwan. For those who don't know, Taiwan has lots of outer islands. It's not like it's just one big island. And so there are these um, Taiwanese you know, soldiers with loaded weapons and all, and there's this unarmed drone, one of those crazy little ones that you'd see in your neighborhood that drive you crazy, and it's flying around this bunker... And they're all trying to figure out what to do. Like, do they shoot this thing? It's not armed. It's not bugging us. It's just kind of pesky. But hey, oh, 
now that we think about it, it's kind of mapping out how many men are in here, and it knows where we are and what we look like, and and this, like, drone is obviously very pesky. It's probably being flown by some nearby Chinese ship, but I thought it was very interesting, as we often talk about tech news and drones, or robot dogs, as we did the last couple of weeks, that Chinese analysts are saying that drones and unmanned aerial vehicles are going to serve as door kickers of future wars because it's easy to think about these drones flying in beforehand to map out targets. And, you know, Taiwan will need a way to stop those, clearly. And then one other thing was these analysts in China are saying, hey, we need to promote some type of way to control social media, even more than China already does, which they already do it to a great extent. You can barely speak out in China. You can't get to the internet in many places. But they want to do that even more because they don't want Western information campaigns to influence their people. And so that's something that their analysts say needs to happen. Now, I'd said it was kind of like a tale of two cities. So while all of that was going on, the other article I wanted to link to was about how the U.S., there's an analyst talking about how the U.S., as they plan this future war, we don't have a lot of ships. We have about 300. And one of the things, one of the shortcomings that the U.S. is starting to realize, at least some of the analysts are, is that to keep our Navy out at sea, they've got to be refueled. And they're refueled by escort vessels, but or I'm sorry, by unarmed like oilers and supply vessels. But this analyst is like, hey, you know, if we really do end up fighting China... The way we currently do things, it's not going to work because we can't just like send an unarmed, you know, massive tanker that has nothing but fuel on it out there because they'll have a sub or a jet shoot the thing down. And so we need escort ships, just like we used to have back in World War II. And so I've got the link to a thread. If you're one of those people that like to get in the weeds, um, there's some really smart naval minds who have commented and created a thread you know it's the kind of those things if you really like to get in the weeds it's fun to go down that road so the u.s while china is figuring out what it might do if it has to attack at the exact same time the u.s is also grappling with how do we make sure we're ready to counter what china will do so that's kind of the news for china this week wasn't a lot of big stuff that happened but i always try to bring it up because it is the kind of looming conflict that could eventually happen that we still have to keep our eyes on all right, so we're going to move from China to Iran, which we mentioned from time to time. Obviously, as a quick recap, they've been dealing with some protest, and everyone was hoping for a bit that maybe there would be kind of a democratic-type movement that might overthrow the government. But as I said a few weeks ago, from what I can tell, and it is difficult to get real news out of Iran because they have a tight, very tight grasp on everything, but it does appear that the Iranian authorities, partly by kind of yielding ground very very artfully, I would say, instead of overreacting, they've kind of outlasted the protest movement. So even though it does appear that a lot of people are still unhappy with the current regime, they have managed to hold their ground. But I did want to share an article I'd seen that was in the AP, and it followed some smaller articles that I'd kind of just decided not to skip, but the story's gotten big enough that it kind of deserves some attention. And what I'm referring to is there are some increasing suspected poisonings of Iranian schoolgirls. I can barely say the word. I've said before, guys, I apologize. I have a bit of a, you know, some speech issues sometimes, and I'm from the South, so that doesn't, that doesn't make it um, very good, but poisonings is the word I was trying to say, and so the AP talks about we're we're talking we're not talking like a dozen schoolgirls we're talking in one instance two hundred and ninety different suspected school school poisonings, and we're talking like seven thousand students in that one. In another part of the article. They think at least 99 cities, which involve 28 of Iran's 31 provinces. They quote another person who said that it could be about 5,000 students and 230 schools across 25 provinces. So the bigger point is 
there are hundreds and hundreds of schools and literally thousands of school girls who are being poisoned. Some of them are dying. Some of them are just getting sick and vomiting and just very sick. So they can't figure out exactly who is doing this. So I wanted to dig into that some. And here are a couple of the main suspects. First is perhaps religious extremists that are from Iran who they want schoolgirls to stop getting a education. They think girls don't belong in schools. And back in 2014, there was there was a wave of acid attacks where they would throw acid on girls. And that was at the time believed to be carried out by hardliners. And these were hardliners who didn't want women to dress a certain way. And they believe some of these same people may be doing it. But there's also another theory, which is that Iran has been, you know, advising and asking the neighboring country of Afghanistan to allow girls and women to return to school because Iran is not as extreme as Afghanistan or the Taliban, its current ruling government is. And so they've been asking the Taliban to let women and girls go to school because obviously this could lead to Western countries supporting the Afghanistan and allowing the Taliban to get Western aid, which the country desperately needs because it is a struggling country that's very impoverished. And so some suspect that because Iran is saying, hey, you shouldn't be letting these, you know, you shouldn't stop women and young girls from going to school, some suspect that maybe the Taliban is poisoning these girls. But whichever it is, it is causing a lot of unrest. And for whatever reason, even though Iran has a pretty good military and state police force, they cannot seem to get to the bottom of it, which in itself leads to unrest, does it not? Because if our government cannot protect us, that's one of the you know, key tenets of why someone, why we all have governments, is one to protect us, and obviously then the government collects taxes, and if a government can't collect taxes, if people refuse to pay the government, then the government isn't strong enough to take in that revenue, then there's an issue there. So most governments are, and so most governments can at least protect their people, and they can at least, you know, force people to pay taxes. When you can't force people to pay taxes, then you are like Afghanistan, where you have warlords, where you have people who are too powerful to, you know, pay taxes. So it's interesting that the government in Iran can't figure this out, but also they're again showing weakness because they can't protect their people. They couldn't put down the revolution they only put it down by mostly giving in, and now this same government that at least used to provide security to the Iranian people is showing that they either can't control their own religious hardliners or they can't control you know, extremists that are potentially agents of the Taliban from Afghanistan to its uh, east. So I wanted to mention that story. I'll keep an eye on it as we go forward. If, any, if there is any news that breaks on that, I will definitely let you know. And you can at least consider yourself a little bit more informed than the average American who probably has no idea about this story. All right, so let's move into some tech news, which I always like to include a little bit every episode. You know, last week we talked about robot dogs. We talked about robot dogs a bit before that. And we've also talked a lot about drones. And one thing I wanted to mention, I'll have three little tech news stories this week. The first one is there's... You know, we've talked about how increasingly autonomous weapons will have, you know, whether it's a drone, whether it's a robot dog, whether it's whatever type of wheeled vehicle that has a weapon on it. And, you know, some will have AI but or artificial intelligence. But there's a great article from Defense One that talks about the actual rules from the Pentagon on whether a autonomous weapon can use lethal you know can it can it basically fire on someone can it use lethal force against a target and so there are some hoops that have to be jumped through before a weapon can do that and be deployed and there was a revised policy on that and there there's a great article that I got linked to in defense one that if you want to get into the weeds on these future weapons and when or if they can on their own destroy a target 
then there's a great article for you to read. The second thing I wanted to knock out was, it's really almost worth going to the Substack notes just to see this, but Task and Purpose put out that the Pentagon wants to develop, and this pretty much has the word China written all over it, but they want to develop a massive seaplane that has the cargo capacity of a C-17, which is one of the largest flying um, planes that we have. So this massive seaplane that could fly slow, fly relatively low, 10,000 feet or under, but deliver just a huge cargo to various islands to reinforce or maybe take part in attacks after the initial wave has landed. And so it's a really cool article if you want to take a look at it, but it's really amazing for those who have a little bit of a historical perspective. You may remember some of the seaplanes from World War II where they could land on the ocean, drop off supplies or pick up men or drop off equipment, and then they would you know, go back out to sea and the propellers would rev up and they would, if the water, there wasn't too many big waves, they could start to pick up speed and then they'd lift off. And so the Pentagon is looking for a giant seaplane that could have a huge cargo and then be mass produced so that if uh, some type of conflict happened with China, there would be another way to resupply some of these islands. Of course, nowhere in that article, if I remember correctly, does it mention China or in the request for the seaplane, but it's so clear what it's designed for. We don't exactly need giant seaplanes for future fighting in the Middle East. It's pretty obvious why we need those. Now, the final thing I wanted to mention was a really cool um, image I came across or a GIF of tanks. And one of the differences between how the U.S. and the what was the communist bloc before, but the Soviet Union slash Russia thinks of war. And it's how modern tanks are so different in the U.S. versus those made in Russia. And one of the things that makes U.S. tanks different, besides the fact that they're better in, in almost every facet, from targeting to uh, electronics, etc., is that U.S. tanks and NATO tanks have what are called blowout panels and blast doors, which, if a tank is hit, it helps protect the crew. Whereas, if you watch these videos that are happening in Ukraine, when you see a Russian tank take a hit there's no one getting out alive because the ammunition is stored with the troops. So when it blows up, everyone blows up. Whereas if you watch this video, or it's just a GIF actually, you can just go look at the Substack notes. There's video of a M1A1 taking a hit, and then there's an interior, so there's exterior camera which shows the explosion. But there's also, what's really cool is there's an interior camera of the interior view of the tank. And these blast doors help protect with the blowout panels help protect the crew so that all the live ammunition starts exploding but no heat no damage to anyone inside the tank itself so that in theory if there was a major war you could take an experienced crew hopefully they would survive that hit and then you just throw them in another vehicle so it's just interesting the difference between western thinking and eastern thinking on at least survivability of tank crews. Because I know those of us who've served in the military, a lot of times we think the military doesn't care whether we live or die. And it often feels that way. But then you watch a country like Russia wage war and you realize, well, actually our you know, our military, the Army, the Marine Corps, the Navy, etc., they really do care about us more than some countries. So that's the only other tech news thing I wanted to drop. I know that's not new, so, new stuff, so to speak, but I just found that video very interesting. And just a, a good reminder for the difference in the philosophies between us and Russia. All right, so let's move to the motivation and wisdom portion, which I know for most people is the best part of the show. Hey guys, so one of the things I want to say every week is I feel like all of us are very easily influenced, whether it's seeing someone run by on the street and then it's like, oh, I should go do exercise, or whether we're watching the commercial and seeing food and suddenly we're very hungry. We all are very easily influenced, and so I want to do my small part to encourage each and every one of us that are out there, because I certainly know that I need it. So I hope that these items I'm about to share help you, and if they do, definitely tell a friend, share it with them as well. All right, as I say every week, you can find the various accounts that I will quote from 
in the source notes on Substack. They are all from the wonderful place known as Twitter, because I'm one of those weirdos who actually enjoys Twitter still to this day. So, let's just begin. Here is the first one. Sometimes you just need to relax and trust that things will work out. It's pretty good, isn't it? Again, that was. Sometimes you just need to relax and trust that things will work out. It's a good one. It's very hard where you want to take control of everything, but sometimes that's good advice. Next one. Don't be lazy. Do the work. You won't grow from easy. It's another good one. Don't be lazy. Do the work. You won't grow from easy. Next one. And this one is, as I read it, this applies to whatever field you're in. But I thought it was good. The quote is, writing is hard. Tweeting is easy. And of course, of course, tweeting is what you do on Twitter. But uh, again, the quote is, writing is hard. Tweeting is easy. And I know, speaking for myself, and I bet you do the same thing in whatever field you're in. There are many times where I need to write, and I'm like, ah, sit down, I open up the file, I start to do it, my mind gets a little distracted, and I say, oh, I'll just jump on Twitter just for a minute, just need a distraction, and plus it's branding, I'll, you know, I'll say a few things, and that'll help get my name out, which will help me sell books, but it is running from the work when you do that. So no matter what it is you're supposed to be doing, go do that. Don't find the easy distraction. So again, the quote was, writing is hard, tweeting is easy. And maybe you don't do tweeting, whatever it is you do that you know you shouldn't be doing where you get that distraction. Maybe you're jumping on Instagram or TikTok, watching a bunch of silly videos, and then you've wasted five or ten minutes. Don't do that. You know you shouldn't do that. Next one. Words can be deceptive. Actions never are. Oh, that one is so good. Again, words can be deceptive. Actions never are. So good. Next one. One of the most beautiful things in the world we can do is to help one another. Kindness doesn't cost a thing. Another good one. Again, it's one of the most beautiful things in the world we can do is to help one another. Kindness doesn't cost a thing. Next one. Don't give up. Pain is temporary. Regret is forever. I'm betting you've heard that one, but it's a good one. Don't give up. Pain is temporary. Regret is forever. All right, next one. A leader leads more by how he lives than by what he says. Another good one. Again, a leader leads more by how he lives than by what he says. Next one. Never stop trying. Never stop believing. Never give up. Your day will come. Oh, that's such a good one. Never stop trying. Never stop believing. Never give up. Your day will come. Next one. The only way to be a failure is to stop trying. It's another great one. Again, it is. The only way to be a failure is to stop trying. Next one. Do it for the people who want to see you fail. Again, the quote is, do it for the people who want to see you fail. Sometimes the haters can push us, can they not? I had some people who didn't think I could make it in the Marine Corps or make it in the infantry. And sometimes in the deepest, darkest times when I wondered if I could go, I knew I couldn't go back home and let them see me. So sometimes you got to do it for the people who want to see you fail. Next one, never give up because you never know if the next try is going to be the one that works. It's another great one. Never give up, because you never know if the next try is going to be the one that works. Next one. You can have anything if you are willing to work for it. Don't let any unsuccessful human convince you otherwise. Man, that is so good. You can have anything if you are willing to work for it. Don't let any unsuccessful human convince you otherwise. Reminds me of a quote. I won't say who said it, but uh, there's a guy who's multi-millionaire who talked about how we all will listen to our drunk, lazy, barely employed neighbor, and we take what they say to be just like the absolute truth all the time. 
and you know those type of people, and they talk so confident, and they just know, oh, this will never work, or that, and it's like, why, who is talking to you, and should you listen to them? I think sometimes we have to reframe in our mind, who is this person talking to you, and should you listen to them? You know, with my books, should I listen to someone who doesn't read, much less is not an author, who says, Stan, you're wasting too much time wasting books? No. I should probably listen to people who've actually written books. There aren't a whole lot who've done that that I personally know, so I need to keep that circle small. It's already small, but that's who I need to be talking to, not to a person who doesn't read or doesn't write. So, again, you can have anything if you are willing to work for it. Don't let any unsuccessful human convince you otherwise. Next one. Be thankful for all the people that spoke to the winner in you before you started winning. Dang, that is so good. Again, it's be thankful for all the people that spoke to the winner in you before you started winning. And I wanted to say, that's one of those that we all have that ability to speak to someone now. Whether it's some young person who's chasing a dream or whatever. Man, we all have the ability to reach out and compliment someone, encourage someone, check on someone. And we should be doing that. And we can all remember times where we had that coach or that teacher or that person, that adult, that that someone who had some pivotal point in your life encouraged you or checked on you or, you know, motivated you, whatever that thing is. And so we know how that influenced us as you look at your own life. So go do that to someone else and do that today. I always like to end with this one. Be the reason someone smiles. Be the reason someone feels loved and believes in the goodness of people. I always think that's a great one to end with. And with that, thanks for joining us this week on The View from the Front. For those who want to know a little bit more about me, here's the short version. I'm from Knoxville, Tennessee, and I left home to join the Marine Corps at the age of 17. I was also crazy enough to demand that the Marine Corps put me down for guaranteed infantry. I served four years in the infantry, saw enough danger to decide I no longer had anything else to prove, and I exited military service in 1999. I earned a degree from the University of Tennessee in journalism and spent 10 plus years in the news business. I worked initially as a reporter, but then went on to start a weekly newspaper. What can I say? Anyone crazy enough to start a weekly newspaper at the age of 27 is probably a dreamer and an optimist, and I confess that I'm both. I owned that weekly newspaper for nine years, from 2004 to 2013, but once it was clear that owning a newspaper wasn't the best path to financial security, I went on to become an author. To date, I've written 11 books, and while I still have my sights set on the tallest peaks in the writing world, I'm now here as well, a -a once-a-week podcaster who's still in love with both this country and the news, and I see this podcast as a small way to continue serving our country doing my best to inform and unite us in a time that we're as divided as we've probably been in a hundred years. Well, I've talked enough about me. I really hope you'll consider at least signing up to be a free subscriber. And if you can, consider at some point becoming a paid subscriber. Again, you can do both of these things at my substack, stanrmitchell.substack.com. Again, that's stanrmitchell.substack.com. As a reminder, please be kind and try your best to love your fellow Americans. Let's all work together to unite this country. And also, please try to be a better person each and every day. Try to be kinder on social media and how you interact with others with whom you disagree. And if you've got a dream kicking around in the back of your mind, go after it. If you have that friend or family member that you know you should reach out to, who you haven't talked to in a few months, reach out to them. And finally, if you're one of those awesome military folks listening out there, if you need help, please reach out to someone, call a friend or a family member, do it for us all. We've lost too many of the greatest folks that this country has produced to suicide, so I'm asking you to be brave once more and show some vulnerability. Take a deep breath, breathe, call a friend or family member, one of your fellow veterans, someone who can help. There's obviously hotline numbers as well that you can call. With that, I appreciate each and every one of you, every tweet, every share, every email that I get, can't tell you how much those mean to me. Also, if you haven't already put a rating on some of the social media places that you listen to us, whether it's Apple Podcasts or some of the others, if you could drop a rating, that'd be great. We're trying to get those up because I've heard if you get them up to 30 or 40, 
then the algorithms take over. So that'd be a great way to help out. Finally, I should mention my books. I've written 11 of them. I've written a CIA Marine Sniper series. I've written a detective series. I've written a private investigator series. I've written a crammed, action-packed western. I've written a motivational self-help book. And I've even written two realistic war novels, one about World War II, one about Afghanistan. You can find all of those books on Amazon by simply searching my name, Stan R. Mitchell, or you can find a link to them in the Substack notes. Again, thanks so much, guys, for joining us this week. And with that, I am out.